Welcome back to another episode of the Nocturnal Unwrapped podcast. My name is Pilar Sander Shongwe, and I'm one of your hosts. I'm joined today by my good friend and co-host. And it's actually the first time that him and I are hosting the podcast together. So I'm pretty excited about that. But of course, I'm also excited by the conversation that Simo and I are going to have today. And of course, the stature of guests that we have to discuss today's episode with. But without being too long-winded and wasting too much time, I want to try and get Simo to get a word out <laughs> before we introduce our guest. Simo, how are you doing, bro? I'm doing great, bro. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. It's a good day. I can't complain. No complaints on my side. Yeah. yeah. Finally, cool, huh? finally. It's taken yeah, about yeah, eight it's months for been... us to do this and finally yeah, we're here. Yeah. yeah. No, I'm excited, man. I'm excited. And as I said, I'm excited not only about the prospect of having the conversation and hosting it with you, but also by the, the guests that we have to discuss this with. I want to try and introduce the guest. I think it's important that we perhaps, before I do that, give a bit of a background to how this conversation actually came to be. I mentioned to our guest that I actually recorded a podcast last year in Stellenbosch with Professor Stan Petersi, who's the Chief Operating Officer of Stellenbosch University. That podcast, for those who are interested in listening to it, we'll link it in the description of this video as well, is called Sound and Unsound Money. So essentially what that conversation sought to do was to talk about the history of money. And we were using the Bitcoin standard as an anchor for that conversation. And in one of the segments of the discussion, Professor Duplessis brought up a particular factoid that I thought was pretty interesting, after which he recommended that we talk to today's guest. He mentioned that there was a particular butcher in the Overbird that was so successful and was so established on such a large scale that some of the tokens that he was issuing out actually circulated to a limited extent as money in a particular society. Um, so for those who actually know or who have listened to the conversation, they'll know who, who, who I'm talking about exactly. But I don't want to waste too much time. I want to try and introduce the guest. We're joined today by Stellenbosch University's Professor Johan Faree. Professor Faree studied economics at Stellenbosch University between 2001 and 2007, after which he went to the, to the Netherlands, pardon me, at Utrecht University to study his PhD in economic history. He's also, incidentally, the author of the book that's the subject of our discussion today, which is titled, as Simo is showing it, Our Long Walk to Economic Freedom, Lessons from 100,000 Years of Human History. Prof. Faree, what an absolute privilege it is to talk to you. Thank you so much for making the time, and I cannot wait to get this discussion started. Thanks for the invite. Thanks for having me on this important day as well. <laughs> no, no, it's a great privilege. And as far as birthday presents go, this is a pretty good one. It's, it's right up there. Asimo, do you have any questions for Prof. Furi before we begin? So good morning, Prof. Furi, on this important day. So we have your book in front of us. I have actually read it and it's a very, very good and interesting read. So before we get into the nitty gritties of the book, I was wondering perhaps you could introduce yourself to our listeners after Pilar's intro, you can introduce yourself to our listeners and tell us a little bit more about yourself, why you got into history, economic history, why you got into economics. Sure, it's it's wonderful to be here, and I think that's already a pretty a pretty good introduction. So I'll I'll just say that I think a lot of things in life happen serendipitously. So and that's basically why I got into economic history. I was studied, I studied here at Stellenbosch, and then I was a trade economist. I was appointed in 2006 and teaching, teaching international trade and first years and second years macro. And then randomly, one of my colleagues here and friends proposed that we write a paper together where we found some ship traffic data of South Africa. And we wrote this paper and presented it at a conference in Portugal. And there I randomly met a professor who said to me at some stage, well, why don't you do a PhD in economic history? This seems like a fascinating data set. It seems like a fascinating time period to study. And, and so through this kind of happenstance way, I, I 
entered the field of economic history and, and I really haven't looked back since. So it's, I finished my PhD in 2012 and really for the last 10 years or so, I've been teaching economic history at the undergraduate and graduate level here at Stellenbosch. Several students have come through, PhD students that are now in you know, other universities in South Africa or doing postdocs abroad. So it's really kind of nice to have established this kind of center for, for economic history. And of course, now the book has taken it beyond the, the university and, and I've been able to you know, engage with a much broader audience, which is which has really been lovely and, and, and naturally has, has been in a way kind of revealing of the things that people know and don't know. So I've really enjoyed the, the engagement. You yeah. wrote this, was it always your intention to write this book or was it similar happenstance that you stumbled upon? Yeah, that's, that's, that's exactly it. It's, it's COVID in 2020, at the beginning of COVID or of lockdown, at least I, I was forced to teach my course online. And it's a course which is quite difficult to teach because it's quite an interactive course. And you know, as you know, I think you know students don't love interacting online. And so I just I just thought the students are going to get a, a worse product if, if I just do this online. And so I started writing up my lectures. And at some stage, some of the students were saying, well, you know, I enjoyed reading these lectures, but my parents and my brother and they've enjoyed reading the, the lectures as well. And I thought, well, maybe this is kind of useful for a broad audience. And I happened to know a, a, a publisher and she said to me, well, why don't you send it to like one or two or three publishers? And only one of them got back. I sent three emails, I think, and only one got back and said, well, let's, let's give it a try. So it was never really an intention to write a book from the start. It's kind of developed over time, but it was, it was the ideas of within the book had been developed, you know, for the last decade, basically. So it's, it's also, it's not something that I, you know, planned and, and structured and then wrote, it was something that was already kind of within me. And then it was much easier to, to do so. I mean, I have some of those chapters I wrote basically, you know, on, in one day. So, it, so it was there, there and yeah, it, I think some of those earlier chapters was, was pretty easy to write because, because I knew everything that I wanted to say. Some of the later chapters took, took a while, but the, the earlier ones were, were pretty quick. Okay. Yeah. So, so, I mean, I, and maybe just to get maybe to the contents of the book, because I'm sure the listeners and viewers would like to obviously know a bit more about the book. I mean, I know that there's a second edition that's on its way. I'm not sure if it's out yet, and I'm not sure how different it will be from the current copy that Simo and I have read. But I presume, as I've heard you speaking on previous uh, interviews, that it'll have about two more chapters. I'm not sure if I've got that accurately, but I'll give you a chance to maybe just say a, a bit more about the book. Obviously not revealing too much, but yeah, just to give us a sense of what it is that we can expect from the book. So I mentioned before I introduced you, Prof, that I had a conversation with Prof DPC in which we discussed the history of money. And I thought it would be important for us to discuss more broadly the history of economics. And that's why I actually thought it was important to have this discussion with you. And of course, when I have some of these discussions, I've had a lot of debates and discussions with friends that have gone on well into them about economics and about history more generally. And it's come, oh, it's, it's my realization that there is a view that has been allowed to develop and perhaps even to coagulate in the mainstream. And it is that it is only those of us who have pro-market inclinations that have any explanations to give. 
And I mean, as far as I can tell, if, if history and economic history more specifically is anything to go by, I mean, we should be the ones demanding explanations from those that demand them from us. So, I mean, when we talk about economic history, I think there's a lot of optimism that, you know, we can derive from it. And of course, that's, you know, contention nowadays. But I mean, I don't want to be too long winded. I, I just wanted to talk very quickly about obviously the point that I've just made now about, you know, the contention that uh, those of us who espouse pro-market ideas and the kind of backlash that we get. So, and I, and I think you actually hint at this and you actually try to deal with it in the book. And one clue that you give in the title of the book is with the, the words economic freedom. And we, of course, know in South Africa that the terms economic freedom are not so much uh, associated with the kind of economic freedom that those of us who espouse these pro-market ideas have come or have become acquainted with. So why that title? Hey, I thought it was a very interesting title. I, I think the choice of the words was quite interesting. Mm -hmm. So do you maybe wish to talk a bit more about why those particular words and whether you mean what the guys with the red berets mean by economic freedom? Yeah, well, there, there are many questions in that question. So let me let me start with the final one first, and then and you, then you can kind of pull me back on the on the road again if I if I get distracted. I think the I think actually we do mean the same thing when you know the EFF. Obviously, I can't speak for them, but my my suspicion is that we share the same vision about what we want, and that is that people have economic freedom. What do I mean with that? Is is the ability to produce what you want, so work where you want to work, you know, have a job that, that is a fulfilling job. Firstly, have a job. I think that's obviously within the South African context important, but also one that is fulfilling, that, that you know, you grow up to be whatever you want to be. And I think we're certainly not there yet. And secondly, then consume what you want, right? So there are very high levels of poverty still in South Africa. And, and so clearly there are a lot of people that would want to consume, you know, better housing, more better, more nutritious food, all of these things that they want, leisure, that they can't consume, right? So there's in a very, very kind of kind of basic sense, economic freedom is the ability to consume and produce what you want. Right? And of course, I must say, historically, for most South Africans, that has not been the case, right? There were rules and regulations that prevented where people can live, what type of jobs they can fill, what type of education they can have. And so it is certainly South Africa is one where these freedoms were restricted where they inhibit. So I think that's the ultimate goal. The question is how we get there, right? And I think that's where we differ probably from, or at least where my view would differ from uh, EFF, for example, view, right? So I think they would attach a much greater role for the state to be involved. And, and, and I think you alluded to the fact that I think if we study economic history, you know, you understand the role, the incredibly powerful role that the market can play in creating prosperity, right? So I think ultimately, the market. It's not to say that there should only be a market, there should be no government. Of course, there should be a government. There's many things where the market fails. But I think the, 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 the majority or the dominant role should be that of, of kind of the market approach. And the reason I say that is because we've tried many different approaches in history, right? So you can study history and you, and you know that there are basically three ways of solving, you know, the economic problem, problems of, of production and distribution. So that's really what economic freedom throughout how do we produce enough things the right things and how do we distribute it fairly and equitably and we've tried you know the tradition approach for example we've tried so that is typically you know you do basically the same things that your parents did and you just continue that system it's a very in a sense it's a very simple system but it doesn't really re lead to any innovation right? or you can have this kind of state command type approach which is like this a government or a command council right in south africa we know this term but well, that dictates what should be produced. 
Now that sounds, you know, in, in a way it sounds quite an appealing thing to do because now people, there's some dynamism in the system. You can build a pyramid or you can build, you know, something big and infrastructure, all of this, and that's great. But the problem there is, is that people lose freedom. So they don't have individual choice anymore. Like you have to do what the state tells you to do. Right? And the third one is basically the Adam Smith kind of approach of just let people do whatever they want. Now that seems crazy, right? To just let people do, but ultimately it's about people reacting to the price mechanism. So prices dictate, right? All our collective decisions are captured in the price of things. And of course that means that we should have, we, we should try and have a competitive system. So we should have many buyers, we should have many sellers, because then it ultimately the price is an efficient and equitable way of distributing things. But if you have a monopoly, for example, then typically they set monopoly prices. And so that creates inefficiencies in the system. So again, that's perhaps where the government can intervene in to help this market system become more efficient and more equitable. But ultimately, it's still the market that makes these decisions. So I think that's really the lessons from history and how we can, or at least my view of it, is how the types of policies that we set going forward can get us to a more economic, economically free society. I think just to, in terms of the title, I think, yeah, of course, it alludes to, to Nelson Mandela's long walk to freedom. There's a reason for that in that the book is about global economic history, but it's written from a South African or African perspective. And so I really want to make that point already in the title, right? So that, and, and I think as soon as you see the title, you already know that this is from a South African perspective. So that's great. But I do think the most important word actually in the title is, is the hour, right? So, so most people kind of forget actually the hour when they, when they kind of talk about the book, but it's so essential because ultimately economic history is about cooperation, right? The idea that we are in this market together is, is an idea that we have trust between one another. You spoke to the professor Duplessis about money, money is a construct that relies entirely on trust, right? There wouldn't be any money if there is no trust. I think Harari, this you know, historian from, from Jerusalem who wrote Sapiens, ma makes that point very, very clearly that it's all about, about trust. And so, and trust requires inevitably, you know, cooperation and, and they are, you know, and so I think that's the, the fundamental thing about that we need to understand going forward is that as soon as these relationships between people in South Africa break down and we lose the trust in one another, that also has economic implications, right? There is other implications, obviously, as well, but it means that we have to start becoming more independent. But as soon as we become more independent, we become poorer, right? So mm. hunter-gatherer societies, for example, are incredibly independent, right? You can, they can survive on their own for millions of years. But they're also poor. The richest societies in the world are incredibly interdependent. You know, they specialize in this one narrow thing and they buy all their services, their housing, their clothing, their food, everything from other people. And so that's really the kind of society we want to live in, but that relies on trust. It means that if I go to a shop and they, I, I should be able to offer them my money and they should accept that money and I would be able to purchase it. That's an incredibly, you know, it's actually, it's such an, uh, incredible innovation and and we kind of forget it we think we take it for granted but you know as soon as societies break down this trust in war or whatever breaks down you very quickly realize that that is really what underpins our prosperity so I, i'm not sure if i've answered all the questions in there perhaps just the final thing when you started out you mentioned something about the new book so so let me just say that that yeah the book was published the first one was published in 2021 by Tafelberg in in south africa so that's the south african edition 
there's a new international edition coming out actually as we speak it's being delivered at my at my home so it's now in print and it's it's slightly a longer version it's about 10,000 words more there's a new chapter on war actually which was you know, quite fortuitous because I wrote this already last year before the Russia-Ukrainian war. And, and hopefully, you know, this will also be published next year in South Africa. So a revised version will be published, the second edition. But I think they are, you know, I think that the, the one that you certainly reviewed is, in my mind, you know, that's 95% of, of what is in the book is is the main message. And so I don't think the, the second version will be, will you know, it's not going to tell a, a different story. It's the same story, perhaps, you know, with a little bit more footnotes because it's a Cambridge University Press edition. Mm -hmm. so, so I think that's really the kind of the main, main message. So a few things to pick up on. So you mentioned, uh, of course, the hunter-gatherer societies, which are hugely independent. I think a common day or current day example would be North Korea. North Korea is also quite independent. And of course, we know about the destitution over there. But what I like quite a bit about your book, having read, and I... I mean, having admitted this in previous podcasts as well, I'm a huge admirer of Hayek and by extension, Adam Smith as well. So when you talk about the price mechanism, I, I, I get excited because it says to me that we're on the same page. There's a very interesting book that I'm reading at the moment by Thomas Sowell that's known as Knowledge and Decisions. And there is a very interesting passage that I flagged because I foresaw that you would talk about the price mechanism. And I just quickly want to read that excerpt before we get into the contents of the book, if you, of course, won't mind. And before I hand over to Seymour for his questions, this is from Sol's chapter known as The Role of Knowledge. How does an ignorant world perform intricate functions requiring enormous knowledge? The intricate functions include not only such scientific feats as air travel and space exploration, but also the complex economic processes that bring a slice of bread and a piece of butter to your plate at breakfast. Anyone who has studied the actual process by which these food items are planned, produced, and distributed knows that the complexity staggers the mind. Many highly intelligent and highly trained people spend a lifetime studying it and learning more all the time. Among those who speculate financially in such commodities, economic disaster is commonplace, even after they have spent years studying the market. In short, individually we know so pathetically little and yet socially, we use a range of complexity and knowledge which would confound a computer. The question is not only how given institutions, including whole societies, manage to do this, but how various institutions and societies differ, differ in the manner and effectiveness with which they do it, and what to do the historic and continuing changes in the way they perform or function to portend to the future, which really, for me, I think encapsulates, A, what Hayek uh, wrote about in The Use of Knowledge in Society, that wonderful essay of his, but also I think what you espouse in the book about collaboration and how interconnected we are as, uh, as a globe, and that the only way we're able to produce anything approximating the kind of wealth that sustains us is, is, is through this you know, interconnected web of collaboration that Sol and, of course, uh, you write so eloquently about in your book. And, and, and I think the, the strange thing for me is often is how, how, you know, little we think about this. And so my students would often, you know, I would say, well, why would we want to be a, a country that's kind of independent from the global system, right? This is quite an appealing thought for many is to say South Africa should, should produce its own food. It should produce its own clothes. And, and my question is always, you know, why, right? And, and when I make that point, I say to them, well, you are sitting at a university and, and the purpose of, I, I imagine that you're here is to, you know, obtain an education, to specialize, you know, you study, you know, financial planning, you study law and you become so specialized that you obviously, the more specialized you are, the higher your salary, right? And it means that you're only going to do that one thing, which means that everything else that you need, you're going to buy, 
right? So you are not going independent. If you were to go independent, you would go and live in the Karoo. You would have your own solar panels and, you know, you wouldn't make those solar panels yourself. You would still buy that. But, you know, you would go off the grid and, and live an independent life. But that would ultimately be a very, you know, impoverished life if you have to produce everything yourself, your own clothes, all of these kinds of things. Yet, yet you want that for South Africa, right? You want it at the country level, but you, but you don't believe it or you don't certainly do it yourself. And it's that disconnect that sometimes frustrates me because we, we, the way we behave, the way we operate is, is completely counter to what we think we believe about the world, that we should be somehow independent or autarkic or, you know, and, and, just, and just produce our own things. And so that's really something that I, that I hope the book will bring to light is the, is the fact that you know, we, the way we kind of do things are often very different from, from what we at least communicate that we think is important. Sure, sure. So the parts that stuck out to me in the book, well, firstly, you know, I'm, I'm not as amped on economics as the both of you guys are, I suppose. So the part that stuck out for me is that when I started reading, I realized, oh, this is a book about history. So, and, and I'm a big fan of history. And my favorite part about history and what this book shows is that nothing much is actually new. You know, the social, political, and the economic issues that exist in, in the past, they often exist now too. In the book, you even quote Mark Twain, where you say, history may not repeat itself, but it often rhymes. You know, this is evidenced by many things in the book itself. You know, you also, you, you talk about the similarities between the Great Depression and the Great Recession. History will also show us how the nationalizing of lands and banks has gone. And that's relevant now to some issues because some political parties, you know, obviously advocate for that. So what I do, what, what I will comment about the book is that so it's, a, it's actually a meaningful gateway into the future, you know. I also found the book mm -hmm. quite useful because it has some, some very, actually a lot of very interesting factoids, which I hope to remember when I enter for Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. <laughs> <laughs> like, for instance, now I know that Mansa Musa existed in the 14th century. He was incredibly rich. He was, he was a generous gift giver. You know, all of these factoids about Africa, they're interesting too as well. So you, you went into pretty... A, a lot of detail and I'm sure a lot of research went into this. So we commend you for that. Yeah, thanks. I, I think, I mean, so the month of Musa is interesting because I have, I, at the beginning of every year in my, in my class, in my second year class, I start with a test, which is not always very, students, you know, they get this kind of fright when, when I say we're going to start with the test. But I, I basically show them a map of Africa and I, a blank map, basically just the country outlines. And then I have like, Five countries listed, say, you know, Botswana and Nigeria, Kenya, Senegal, and maybe like a more difficult one, like Mauritania or something. And I asked them to name those countries. And I'm always surprised. It's, you know, the average has basically been the same for the last decade. And it's, it's almost, always, you know, just above one. So basically the average student know, you know, doesn't know much about the continent. And, you know, the implication is they also don't know anything about the, its history. And, and that's to me, you know, I would have expected that to be the case for, you know, students in Europe or the US perhaps, but, but it's, you know, it's really surprising that, that this is the case for African students, right? That we are so, and maybe that's, you know, because of our South African exceptionalism that we, we, you know, we think that we are somehow We're special. We're special. Very special, but it is a bit sad. And, and so partly again, this book is, you know, it's, it's dual purpose in the one sense I want to write to an international audience to tell them the stories of Africa, right? So, so put global economic history in an African perspective. But secondly, it's also important for our students, right? To, you know, 
and not only students, obviously the kind of general reader as well, to to know that 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 these stories also fit into a global story. That it's not just that you know somehow there are these you know industrial revolutions and Protestant reformations and all of these kind of big events and then kind of African stories on the side. That it's actually that these stories are part of a kind of a global story. And and I think that's you know I think that I think we've been relatively successful in doing that. It's it's you know not always easy because the literature is kind of limited also on on kind of African history and African economic history specifically. But but I think these kind of anecdotes, the Mansa Musa one specifically, is is a is a great way of of getting into you know the 14th 15th century. This amazing West African education and the preservation of of literary resources, many of whom are now actually being kind of rediscovered. It's stories that we typically do not even think of or certainly you know do much research about, and and hopefully this will encourage more more readers to to look into them. Yeah, no, maybe if I can also just put in a word there. So I think what I appreciated most about the book is, I mean, obviously being a fan of economics and history more generally myself, what I found about the book, or what I found most appealing about the book was that it puts Africa slap bang in the middle, no longer on the fringes and on the margins of economic history in a way that I think was quite refreshing to read, in a way that I think the viewers will themselves find quite refreshing. But I also think that the crucial thing that it did for me was to show that there are many ways of thinking about history and that we shouldn't just be limited to thinking about history in terms of politics and all the social events that happen, Mm -hmm. and that, in fact, most of them are underpinned and undergirded by economic forces, which for me, and in fact, like it, it, it was such a refreshing uh, way of viewing history. And, you know, it, it just really introduced me to a way of thinking that I'd never really explored and that I never really thought existed. I mean, uh, I think one of my most fascinating chapters or one of the chapters that I found most fascinating is that about dowry and how the ratio of land to labor actually contributed to that. Mm-hmm. So I, I know that some of the listeners will probably be curious about that. And I don't want to butcher it by saying it myself. So I'll give it to to you, Prof, to explain from an economic perspective how such concepts, such, such social concepts actually came to be. Yeah, I, I think the first point to make is, is that you're perfectly right that we we often, when we think of any event, right, even a contemporary event or any kind of, you know, major issue at the moment, we typically want to paint that through the, you know, a political lens or a, or a social lens. And ultimately, you know, I'm a strong believer that many of these things have have economic roots and so you know in the book that you know the, the one of the things for example I, I write about one of the chapters is about colonialism and how basically you know we've certainly my before i became an economic historian the way i would think about colonialism would have been through a, a racial lens right so it's clearly like some kind of discriminatory racial policy and then you go and kind of do some analysis and you actually realize well you know yeah sure these guys motivated in a racial context and, and, and in racialized language but ultimately, it had economic roots. And you can see that when you look at the terms of trade, the Berlin Conference happened at exactly the time when African commodities become basically incredibly lucrative. So, you know, if, if you want to say colonialism was just a racial construct, then you have to argue, well, why didn't it happen 10 or 15 years earlier, right? And it's not as, as if people suddenly became more racialized in the, in the late 19th century or, or more racist. So, so I think it's ultimately these economic motivations that, that help me understand many of the things that, that, that we typically think of as just like, you know, these are, are, are common explanations for things. So you're right, the, the, one of the very kind of 
deeply embedded cultural entities, I guess, of our time is, is the, and, and there are many different kinds of cultural practices, I guess, you know, in many of South Africa's different groupings that, that actually are, have deep historical roots, the Bola being one of them. And the explanation there is basically uh, because of factory endowments. So what is a factor? It's basically, as you mentioned, this ratio of land to labor. So Africa is a massive continent in terms of its size, land size. And it's actually got very few people, right? For a variety of reasons, there are few water sources, the, the soil quality is not always that great. There's a very large disease burden. So, so Africa traditionally had very few people given its size of land. Whereas, for example, India had a tiny subcontinent with, you know, many people. And that's obviously still the case today. So this ratio kind of really affects the types of cultural practices that develop. And one of them is, is the border. So, so for example, in Africa, if you were to, if two neighboring clans were at war, because labor is the scarce resource, not land, land is abundantly available. You, when you, when you engage in war, you're not really interested in your neighbor's land because there's a lot of that. You are interested in your neighbor's people. And so slavery develops because that's the one thing that you care about, right? So you, you steal their people, you don't steal their land. Whereas if you're in India or in Europe, you care about the land because the land is the scarce commodity. So you don't care so much about, you kill off the people or whatever, you don't care about the people, you care really about the, about the land. So property rights, for example, develop in different ways, more in people in, in, in Africa and, and in land in, in, in Europe and in India. And also then because labor is so scarce in Africa, the reproductive ability of women become incredibly important. So women are actually treasured much more in Africa than anywhere else in the world. And that also gives rise to like institutions like polygamy. So if you have a very you know, wealthy man, then the, again, what you want is women who can produce many children. So you're more likely to have multiple women. And also the border is an institution that's generated through that because Again, if you're a wealthy man, you're willing to pay the parents of a of your future wife to have that woman's access to that woman's reproductive ability. In India, if you are the father of a of a daughter, you're willing to pay to have that daughter married off to a you know someone with land. So the dowry develops in India, the Dabola in Africa. So and those things then persist, right? Even though those Land labor ratios do not matter anymore, right? We are not in a pre-colonial economy anymore, only relying on, on agriculture. Yet those practices persist. And they actually have really interesting consequences today, which you know I'm not going to go into, but I think that's a fascinating area for research. Like what practices or institutions that were developed you know, many hundreds of years ago, how do those things persist? And then what are the consequences for us today if if we still have those practices that are specific economic roots, but now the economic systems have changed. And so how do they still affect us? And so, you know, things like the very high number of single mother, single mothers in South Africa, given that the Lebola still exists, might be a consequence of those historic practices. So, so I think that's fascinating things to study. And it's, and it shows how relevant history still is, even though we typically don't think of it that way. Still on the topic of chapters that stood out to us. Pilar and I were actually discussing one of the earlier chapters of your book in where you compare the two games of Monopoly and the settlers of Catan. So maybe perhaps you can 
better unpack that concept and how it applies to wealth, how it's not a zero sum game to our viewers. Yeah, I, I think, I mean, I think this, this kind of anecdote sums up the entire book, right? So we think of, often we think of life as a zero sum game, which means that, you know, if you win, I have to lose. And then there are, you know, places where this is the case. If you're participating in the Olympics, there can only be number, you know, only one gold winner. So, you know, that, that's a zero sum game, but the economy doesn't actually work like that, right? So in a market system, it's not like there's a fixed number of jobs available. And if, you know, some people get more jobs, others have to lose jobs. That's almost never, never the case in, in, an, in an economy where there's, you know, economic growth, there's specialization, there's uh, trade, it's a positive sum game. So you actually, you can create jobs without, just, you know, uh, removing jobs from someone else. And so uh, the way I kind of try and explain this is, is through this monopoly set of Catan. Monopoly is a game where everyone starts with an equal amount of money and ultimately there's one winner and everyone else has got no money, right? So that's, that's how most people think the world works. It's a zero sum game. Whereas Settlers of Catan is basically everyone starts with, you know, one little village and a road, and then you, you know, you play, you, you know, throw the dice, there's resources that are distributed, you start trading, and ultimately, okay, certainly one person wins, and, and you know, the first, I think, person with 10 points or whatever, but by the end of the game, when that person wins, everyone else has got a thriving little civilization as well, right? So that kind of gives you a much better sense of what the economy is like. It's not like that person who won took the 10 points from everyone else. Everyone was going to had a, an economy was growing. That person was the first over the over the finish line. And I think that's a much better way to think about about society and, and the way that, that an economy can create prosperity. To put it very simply, you know, 200 years ago, 300 years ago, everyone in the world, basically everyone, was poor, right? Today's poverty rate, everyone was poor, and to, and today. Despite terrible things that happened, right? Despite colonialism in Africa, despite the First and the Second World War, the world on average is 18 times more affluent than it was, right? So with eight times more people and 18 times more affluent, each of those individuals. So that cannot be, you cannot create that kind of wealth by redistributing from certain people to other people. It must be through a positive sum game. And that's what the economy is. It's a positive sum game where we all can win. Yeah. So when you speak about, you know, the, the wealth today relative to the wealth 200 years ago or the dialect thereof, I'm reminded of Steven Pinker's Enlightenment Now. He phrases it, he phrases it quite differently in there. He says that 200 years ago, 90% of the population lived below the poverty line as defined by the World Bank today as I think a dollar uh, or so a day. And obviously you can understand that because there was a feudal system in place and even before then yet more uh, oppressive systems. But when you fast forward to Today, 200 years from then, the situation is completely reversed. 90% of the population today live above the poverty line and only 10% live below it. Now, of course, that 10% is still a staggering number and of course something must be done about it. But we must be able to look objectively at the facts and realize that actually the improvement that we've made is quite significant. So just maybe to the point that you've made about monopoly and settlers of Qatar, we probably should have started on this point, but thanks Simo for raising it. So when I, when I was reading that, I, I, I of course was thinking a lot about not only the economy more broadly, but to certain uh, facets of the economy. So when I think about the stock market, for example, I'm not sure if that same uh, monopoly uh, settlers of Catan uh, anecdote will work. Would the stock market be a spanner in the works of that explanation, or is it built into the explanation that you give? 
Well, no, I think I certainly think it's 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 a settlers of Catan story rather than a monopoly story. But but sure, they are. You know, you can sell at the wrong time and and or buy buy high and sell low or sell low and and buy high. And that seems to be more like a, a, a zero sum game. But remember, if you just look at the long run of the stock market, it's created so much wealth over the 20th century, right? So I mean, a great example is like. Uh, you know the two funds that are that established Stellenbosch University, right? One of them, the the donor said you are only allowed to go to buy government bonds, and the other, the donor said you can buy stock as well. And that fund, the, the bonds one, you know, it was two hundred thousand pounds, I think, initially. It's now I don't know, I don't know. So let's say thirty million rand. The other one was also two hundred thousand pounds, but that's now above one billion rand, right? So the kind of wealth that was created by the stock market in terms of mine, mining stock, and then later, obviously, manufacturing kind of firms, and now more like services and NASPERS and these kind of things. It's just far superior to anything that you could have invested in over the 20th century. So it's created all this, this kind of wealth. But sure, if you're a day trader and you, know, you buy and sell and buy and sell and, and you hope to make a little bit of a profit, then it's going to seem more like the the stock market is a is a zero sum game because if you you know if you are a stock trader and you win a little bit today then presumably somewhere else someone had lost a little bit but in the, if you're an investor and you buy now and you sell again in 20 years it's going to be a you know you're going to it's a positive sum game you're going to make you're going to make money over that term if you buy an index fund for example and i think that's really the it's a reflection right so it's not the stock market itself that creates the money it's it's firms that you invest in and that those firms, they use that capital to invest and, and expand and so forth. So as long as that process is allowed to, to continue, then, then the investors in those firms will, will see the dividends and the, and the returns. Thanks. So I noticed on many occasions when you speak of the African situation, you are quite positive. And so a part that did like stick out to me in the book was in actually right at the very end. The, the final paragraph in, in, in your epilogue. I'd like to read out the quote that you quoted yourself from David Lance. I hope I'm pronouncing it correctly. In this world, the optimists have it, not because they are always right, but because they are positive. Even when wrong, they are positive. And that is the way of achievement, correction, improvement, and success. Educated, eyes open, optimism pays. Pessimism can only offer the empty consolation of being right. So as I said earlier, I noticed much of the book, you're very, very positive about the, what I will call the African situation. In various chapters, you highlight the fact that we are better off now than we were in the past. You make a note of our positive trends, like our strides towards ameliorating inequality, our GDP growth, how countries like Botswana are growing quickly. You even talk about heights, how we're much taller now than we were quite a while ago. All this and more contributes to a generally positive outlook you express in the book on the prospects of Africa doing well. My question is, in a country where social and political instability is extremely high, we hear words like junk status, soaring prices, state capture, load shedding, cop, corrupt politicians in the news almost every day. And we can't even ignore, we also can't ignore the impact of COVID. How do we maintain this positive outlook on our future? I mean, I'm even tempted to ask, how are you still positive on the prospects of us as a country doing well? Yeah, I think that's a, a, a really important question because it is not always easy to, to, 
to remain positive, right? So I think partly the reason I wrote the book was also because I've experienced my students becoming more pessimistic over the last decade. But I, and I and I think partly that is, I mean, I, it's super justified, right? South Africa certainly has 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 done pretty bad the last decade. We've we've now experiencing negative economic growth over you know during and before COVID even, and and the outlook is is not not always very optimistic. So I understand that. But then it's also important for me to realize that my students, you know, many of them can't remember first years, can't remember the 2010 FIFA World Cup, right? They were too young to to really experience it in any way. And so the the South Africa that they've experienced is is very different from the South Africa that I experienced, right? So that South Africa, when I kind of, you know, entered adulthood was a South Africa with extreme optimism. There were many things we were concerned about, HIV, AIDS, all these kind of things that, that obviously also were important. But we also had a growth rate of, you know, 4%, 5% when I started my job here. We were building an electric car. We were, the, you know, we had an electric car shown at the 27, 2007 Paris Motor Show, right? Before Elon Musk had even had built his first Tesla. And and there was so much optimism. I remember actually telling you know my wife that we should buy a electric car. We should save for it because it's going to you know the jewel is going to be in production soon. And so there was so much optimism. And 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 then we took a wrong turn, right? We we shifted towards a more state-led orientation or approach. We know, as you mentioned, the state the, the corruption, state capture. Yet the rest of the world didn't go that way. So if you actually look at global growth. You see a kind of a, a, a strong trend upward. South Africa is the kind of outlier. There's obviously one or two other outliers as well, but we are the one that is not reflecting the kind of optimistic story of, of the rest of the globe. And so I thought it's kind of important to firstly tell students that South Africa is not inevitably doomed, right? It's not, I'm not saying we will do better. I'm, you know, it's it's this eyes open optimism that you reflected. It's, you know, our eyes are open. It's not to say that we are missing all the load shedding and you know the water shedding and all of these kind of things that that are happening at the moment we are very realistic but it's also not to say that that inevitably we doomed to just have a failed state right i think if you think if you go back to the early 1990s you know i was too young to experience this but you can read about this and you realize just the the incredible pessimism there is about South Africa, right? So many people, late 1980s, people believe we're going to have a civil war. Education is in a terrible state for most of South Africa's population. There's very high levels of poverty. We've got very high levels of inflation. We've had more than 10% inflation for more than a decade. We've had very high levels of public debt. There's actually no hope for South Africa, right? And then yet, you know, within 10, 15 years, we turn it around with these high growth rates. Our debt comes down. We have low inflation, lower interest rates. So that's a remarkable turnaround. So if you know, if we do, if we could do it, then there's no reason that we can't do it again. Right? That's the point. And and the important thing here is, I mean, in a couple of places in the book, I think I mentioned this, is that many of the people who became fabulously rich were people who were willing to take on those risks during times when everyone else was saying, you know, it's too dangerous, I'm quitting, right? And so I think the the success of the successful entrepreneurs are those that are are willing to take on those risks and and succeed. And I think in you know in South Africa we of course we need the private sector, we need the entrepreneurs, we need the investment. We also need of course the politicians to do the right thing and, and get the kind of right policies in place. But I don't think we should think that this will never happen. It, it's not to say that it will happen, but I think we we need to be optimistic and think that they are. If we do the right thing, we can we can again 
return to a place where we experience economic growth. And I should add that, you know, that economic growth was not just for the rich. This was, you know, poverty decline from 37% to 7%, like a massive decline in poverty. And then we see actually poverty increase again. So it was just a time when, when we could, we could see the fruits of our labor. Whereas now we've had a decade, even more than a decade now where, where we don't. And that is frustrating. It's, it's obviously worsened by COVID, but the, you know, the hope must be there that, that it can turn around. Yeah. So I've actually got two comments on what you've just said. The first is about a chapter in the book that also, I think, very clearly elucidates what you're talking about now, which is called Cry for Me, Argentina, if, I'm, if, I, if I've got it correctly. Because I, I think what it points to is the corollary of what you're saying. So, you know, Argentina was one of the most prosperous societies in the world. But when we look at them today, you know, they're hovering right at the bottom um, among such countries as South Africa, which, I mean, if you had told an Argentinian all those years ago that this would be the case, they would probably not even believe you. Mm -hmm. So I do think that there's a danger with optimism in the sense that it, it invites a kind of complacency. And I think we need to be wary of that. But I also think as the second sort of comment to make, I, I think, you know, when we talk about obviously the uh, pessimism that a lot of students in your lectures uh, come with, I think a lot of it is a product of the media and the way in which the media is reported. And you touch on uh, the negativity bias in your book, which I think is a very you know, apt uh, sort of a description of why people feel like this. Because there's also a sense in which, as Stephen Pinker again points out in The Better Angels of Our Nature, I believe it was, we were talking about that violence levels have gone down quite precipitously. I think that there's a sense in which you know the media contributes to this because it's very easy to sell a negative story. It's much more difficult to sell a positive story. You know, it's, it's much more difficult to sell the story of a place that was once in war that is now peaceful or a place that was once impoverished, but that is now prosperous. You know, th those kind of things don't really sell in the media. And I think a lot of the pessimism is fueled by such, by such news. So how do you think we can combat that kind of negativity that is spewed out at this high production rate in the mainstream? Because I do think that it's deluding a lot of young people into thinking that we're far worse than we actually are, when I think we've got a lot of gratitude that we owe to yeah. those who have come before us. Well, I think everyone should buy my book and read it. <laughs> I, I, I don't want to blame the media because I think, I mean, it's, it's perfectly irrational for them to do what they do, right? It's, they want to sell newspapers and online clicks and all of these kind of things increasingly so. So for them to then try and tell these kind of positive stories, you know, they, they ultimately, you're going to lose out to the guy who sells the negative news because that's what people want to buy. That's what they want to read. You know, we, as you've mentioned, we have humans have a negativity bias. We want to, we want to make sure that, you know, when there's a lion, we run. We don't want to have the kind of positive story about the grass is nice and green on this side if if there's a lion sitting on it, right? So so that is that is a problem of the type of media or the type of information that we consume. So I don't want to say the, the newspapers need to change their stories. They're never going to change it. If they do change it, they're going to lose out to those that do sell the negative stories. So the market will ultimately dictate that the, the, the media is negative. But I, but I do think, you know, through better kind of education, so that's partly, you know, I'm in the education industry. So I think that's, you know, we need to create a citizenship which are aware that they are consuming media that is negatively biased, right? So if you're in my class, then hopefully you say, well, actually there are these long run trends where you can see that things are improving rapidly. The sad thing I think is, is that this is not the case in all faculties, right? I think that, that certainly in my course, you would be exposed to these kinds of ideas, but I think there are part, there are courses at this university and at many other universities where you are never exposed to the idea that 
we are living much better lives than our ancestors did. In fact, many people would say we are living much worse, even though there's no factual support for those kinds of statements. But it's almost partly because the idea of fact is being questioned in many faculties and many ideologies that, that it's difficult to make this case in those kind of places. So to give you an example, I give a I give a guest talk at, at a different department than my own. And at the end of that talk every year, I get this long, long queue of students who say, why have we never been exposed to these ideas before? And I'm just baffled. Like this, this should not be news to you. This is, this, you know, you can just type in Wikipedia, like, you know, what is the long run decline in poverty like, and you will get the figures, right? Our world in data is a public resource. You can get anything under the sun that you want there. But the idea that we can, you know, we can use data or we can use statistics to tell a story about human progress is a, is a fundamentally, it's an idea that's fundamentally questioned in many disciplines these days. And I, I just think that's silly. Of course, we can, you know, say that the world is a much better place in terms of higher levels of income, in terms of the, our ability to consume, you know, population size, all of these things that we, that we can measure. And of course, we can then also say, like, perhaps there are things that are not as great as they were. Maybe we are, we should care also about, you know, biodiversity. And then you would say, well, actually, in the richest of the rich countries, biodiversity is improving over the last five decades or so. So that's great, right? That means that we actually, if we're a rich society, we can pay for the things that we care about. So we can now spend money on improving the environment. And so those kind of things are, you know, wonderful types of discussions to have. But if you don't believe in statistics, then then we won't be able to ever have those kinds of discussions. So I do think that we are missing something in our education system that exposes students to these kinds of ideas. And that's partly why I, I actually really hope that the book does well outside of only my discipline. It's not only, it shouldn't just be economists who read this. It should be everyone, and especially those in the humanities, I think, would benefit a lot from reading from reading this. Yeah, so that's, so that's partly why I thought that chapter or, or that dichotomy that you drew between uh, Monopoly and Settlers of Catan was so crucial. Because I think the error that a lot of people make here is in trying to view optimism, you know, the realization that we've improved over the past few decades. They, they want to try and paint that sort of progress with the dichotomy of, you know, the, 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 the stagnation and all the errors that we have today. So to them, it's either you recognize that we're doing good or you recognize that societies are falling deeper and deeper into an abyss and that yeah. we need to find uh, ourselves out of that abyss in which yeah. we presently find ourselves. When I think you do the good job of, you know, clarifying that these needn't be mutually exclusive viewpoints, that we can hold both of them concurrently. And I think that's the crucial takeaway here, yeah. that you can realize that there's lots of progress that has been made, whilst also realizing that there's a lot more progress still to be made and that that's where we are to continue growing. Yeah, I think that's perfectly perfectly reasonable. I think the, the another issue I, I would highlight is that, you know, I'm not saying by saying that there's been so much progress, that doesn't mean that the things in the past that we think are, you know, terrible things that happened was good, right? That's what also people are hearing is the fact that I say, you know, the world has become so much more affluent. That means I think colonialism or apartheid or all of these kind of slavery was somehow a good thing. That's certainly not what I'm saying. I mean, in fact, these are the things that I study, right? And I know that that's exactly you know, if they didn't happen, there would have been much more rapid progress. So, so I study how those types of events were debilitating. Like, what did they do? Apartheid was an incredibly debilitating event or or set of policies then that that limited the economic freedoms, right? So the fact that it, these policies were removed actually allowed us to kind of to to grow to levels far beyond that we we thought we 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 could. So it's so so certainly that, but but somehow that that's often confused is the fact that. 
we can both agree that these things were bad and to still say, you know, despite those kind of inhibiting factors, we did manage because of science, because of technology, did manage to do incredibly well. And we can do even better if we continue to remove those kinds of inhibiting regulations and discriminatory laws and those kind of things. So I think that's really an important point also to make. Sure. When talking about Africa's political failures and the and their dictator regimes, one of the chapters actually discusses that. You remarked that it took centuries of conflict for democratic institutions to emerge in Europe. And why would why should we expect the process to be any less painful in Africa? That stood out to me because I kept thinking, you know, what if this is the process? You know, Africa as a whole is still relatively newly independent. I don't think we have hundred years in the bank yet. So I kept thinking that what if this is the process? And we are come, and we are coming from like real oppression. Maybe these are the growing pains, and we'll figure it out. I mean, the fact that we are talking about it is actually a very, very good start. You know, it, it's part of that eyes open optimism optimism approach. Yeah. So, Prof, I'd yeah. just like to ask about the perhaps you can shed light on the relevance of the book yeah. to our people today. What yeah, what I most can they gain from reading? Yeah, I, I think the, that's a, it's an incredibly important point to make. And I think that's partly also my frustration is, is you know, it's actually pretty remarkable that a, that a continent that gained its independence, right, 60 years ago or so, with also borders that are, you know, they are mostly, or many of them at least, are dictated by this colonial oppressors, right? They weren't, they weren't designed by the inhabitants themselves. And yet there's almost no international conflict in Africa over these borders, right? So European, I mean, we, we, we're at in the middle of a, of a European war after centuries of, of European conflict, you would have thought that these borders are now at least finally, you know, set in stone, but they're not like there's a, again, a war in Ukraine and, 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 and Russia. And yet in Africa, with outside enforced borders, there's almost no international conflict. There's no countries that fight between one another, right? All the conflicts in Africa are within countries, like civil conflicts, right? So, or civil wars. So that's actually kind of a remarkable achievement that's that's completely gone under the radar, that, that there hasn't been in 60 years really, like they, you know, there are skirmishes between, you know, Ethiopia and Eritrea, but, and in Somalia, and, you know, there's, there's a couple of these kind of, but most of the conflicts are actually within countries. And so I think that's that's a remarkable achievement and it's actually quite surprising. Right? So yeah, I mean, I think it's been such a hugely, hugely enjoyable conversation. You know, I, for me, as I said earlier, I mean, it's just, it's presented to me and unlocked a world that I didn't even know existed. I didn't know that it was possible to look at history from an economic lens in the way that we have done today and in the way that you have so eloquently done in your book. Like, it really is remarkable. And yeah, I'm really, really thankful that I was able to read the book and I was able to actually discuss the contents of the book with you. So do you, by any chance, have any final comments for our listeners and viewers? Other than oh, that, they need to buy the book. I, well, obviously, buy the book. Um, <laughs> I, maybe I can mention that I, I try and, and, and blog once a week. So if, if people are interested in these ideas, they can go to, I think it's johanfree.substack.com or just johanfree.com. It's also my website. So it'd be wonderful to, for people to sign up. It's free. And, and, you know, I, I write for, for various newspapers. And so you'll get some of those ideas also in your inbox every Monday. Sure thing. One final comment from my side. I just wanted to compliment the naming of the, the, of the chapters. You know, 
I, I really enjoyed. You know, there's one that actually says, why would you want to eat dim sum in Trans Guy? You know, it's, it's quite playful. I enjoy that for a book that's pretty much in the line of a textbook. You know, you, you made it very interesting while still being informative at the same time. So I've got, you, I've got to commend you for that. I was so, accused of clickbait titles. I never thought of them as clickbait titles, but then when someone mentioned that they are clickbait titles, I realized that that's exactly what they are. So yeah, that, that means thanks. They are, they are. I mean, there's another one that says, why should we cry for Argentina? That's a play on words and yeah, the yeah, song yeah. and the movie and Argentina. <laughs> uh, no, thanks also, Pilar and, and Simo. That's really a great conversation. I really enjoyed it. And, and I hope that your listeners will enjoy it too. I actually have no doubt that they will. I mean, just, I mean, the kind of conversations that we've had in the past, I think the one conversation that was screaming out to be had was exactly this one. So yeah, I can't say anything other than that, we are extremely grateful. I mean, it really is a quite remarkable and yeah, long, long may it continue. As a final note to our listeners and viewers, get this book. We will also have links in our bio. Please remember to like, subscribe, comment, and share as much as you can. I mean, every time. And <laughs> we'll catch you guys next time. Cheers.